everybody, Magnus here. You know, just occurred to me that my slogan for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. I say that in pretty much every episode. Or, I try to, anyway. But, I just realized that this is the first show I can remember where I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows all in one episode. All three of them in one go. Now, trust me, it'll all make sense before the show's over, but before too long, you'll hear me talk about a comic book. Then I'll talk about a TV show. And then I'll talk about a movie. Man, I'm awesome. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my show's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. And honestly, if you don't know that by now, I don't know what the hell to tell you. Anyway, so I've been balls deep in another miniseries. In fact, my last six-episode cycle was the first part of it. All in all, I'd say this is probably the biggest, most ambitious miniseries I've ever done. And of course, it's going great because I run the best geek-related podcast anywhere on the internet. Just ask me. Anyway, so the Reader's Digest version of the story is that I've been spending lots of time going through all different kinds of Superman comics. But not just comics. I've already knocked out one trade, and there may even be another one before this is all said and done. Now, you might be wondering why I'm making such a big deal out of Superman right now. Well, I'd have thought it was obvious, but in case it isn't, 2014 is a very important time because it marks Superman's 76th anniversary. And I figured the best way to mark this momentous occasion would be to spend several weeks reflecting on Superman comics in commemoration of this milestone. I mean, think about it. 76 years. That's a big deal. So, if you ask me, it stands to reason that there's no better way to spend my time in 2014, and there's no better character on whom I can focus in 2014 than celebrating Superman and his 76th anniversary. And this time out, it'll be Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 that we hash through. Now, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC, which you can find at dcindexes.com, Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 was released on October the 31st 2012, 
Writer is J. Michael Straczynski, here and after referred to as JMS. Penciler is Shane Davis. Inker is Sandra Hope. Letterer is Rob Lee. Colorist is Barbara Chiardo. Editors are Eddie Berganza and Adam Schlagman. The summary of it goes, the events depicted in Volume 2 occur, uh, occur shortly after those of Volume 1. Perry promotes Clark to write articles to help build the Daily Planet's reputation. Lois is suspicious of Clark and the authenticity of his Superman article, so she de decides to investigate his past. Clark later meets his neighbors, Lisa LaSalle and Eddie Monroe. Lisa and Clark start dating. Criminal Raymond Maxwell Jensen infiltrates the Star Labs research facility to destroy evidence of his crimes kept by an accomplice. Jensen's discovered by guards and while he's and while escaping, he's accidentally exposed to a high-energy neutrino that transforms him into an energy-absorbing supervillain called Parasite. Elsewhere, Clark learns that a tsunami is about to hit the island of Borata. He travels there to help as Superman, but the island nation's ruthless dictator, General Samza, sees him as a threat and threatens to kill his own people if Superman doesn't leave. So Superman complies. Meanwhile, Parasite feeds on the life force of innocent people, killing them, but is unable to satiate his newfound hunger. Parasite decides that Superman might be powerful enough to feed him. Distrustful of Superman, Major Lee proposes that the United States should develop countermeasures should he go rogue. Superman is lured to an incident at a power plant where Parasite attacks him and drains his energy, turning Parasite into a hulking beast with Superman's power. Weakened, Superman escapes while Parasite begins a rampage. Parasite's sister Teresa is informed of his actions, but refuses to believe that it's her brother and takes a flight to Metropolis to see for herself. In the Arctic, the artificial intelligence aboard the Kryptonian ship that brought Superman to Earth has turned a cave system into a vast fortress of solitude. There, Superman researches a means to counter Parasite's powers, and the AI offers to build a crystalline shielding warsuit. In the United States, Major Lee responds to Parasite's rampage with military force. During the following attack, Lee realizes that Parasite is progressively weakening as the energy he absorbed fades. Parasite attacks the Daily Planet building to draw Superman out. They fight, and Superman is completely injured and powerless, leaving him comparable to humans and capable of being injured. The next day, Superman's powers are restored, and he returns to the fortress. The AI completes the warsuit, but warns Superman that it, it'll prevent him from using his heat vision will block the sun's energy, which powers Superman, and that if Parasite breaches the suit and absorbs his powers again, he'll die. Parasite again attacks the, uh, attacks the Daily Planet, and Superman intervenes. With the war suit, Superman can fight Parasite on equal terms, but the suit gradually disintegrates as the battle continues. Teresa arrives, and, the, and Parasite breaks away from the fight to hug her, accidentally absorbing her energy and killing her. Parasite blames Superman for her death and resumes his attack. Superman strikes Parasite with full strength, incapacitating him in the process. Parasite's taken into the, into the custody of the Secondary Army Advanced Technology Division. Try saying that three times fast. During a later telephone conversation with his mother, Clark hears Lisa scream from her apartment and finds she's being attacked. As Superman, he flies her attacker to Alaska and warns him not to go near her again. Lisa then tells Clark that she's working part-time as a prostitute to earn extra money. Clark is heartbroken, but the pair agree to remain friends. In Barada, Superman instigates a rebellion against General Samsa, leading the country to, to democratic reform. Clark returns to his apartment and learns that Eddie Monroe has died of a heroin overdose. He writes an article about Eddie to raise awareness of substance abuse. Clark receives a telephone call from a former teacher in Smallville and learns that Lois is investigating his past. In the epilogue, Lee recruits the wealthy scientists Lex Luthor and his wife, Alexandra, to help find a way to kill Superman. Alright, so, what did I think? Honestly, I dug Volume 2. Mostly. 
what I noticed though is volume two, it's more of a continuation of what we saw in volume one, rather than an escalation to it. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is that it all feels like this is the next logical step considering what went on in volume one. But at the same time, there's no real development to be had with Tyrell or much of anything from the main plot of volume one. Volume two is, it's really more about Clark falling into his new life, settling into his routine and his new job and his new secret identity. Then it is continuing the exact events that we saw from volume one. Now, that's not a criticism. It's not really a praise either. I'm just laying out the facts. So, there are a lot of good ideas and concepts in Volume 2. And we get a good impression of Clark's childhood. But, honestly, I've never been overly fond of writing Clark as a lonely, alienated outsider. Now, I realize that writers have to find conflict and build drama and all that stuff. But, writing somebody with these vast godlike powers to be some kind of misunderstood loner at least to me it doesn't usually come across as all that dramatic all you really accomplish is running the risk of turning someone the audience should be cheering for into a mopey whiny brat jeff johns couldn't be reached for comment to be fair though JMS didn't fall into that trap, but then again, he only had to do just a couple of flashbacks that only lasted for just a few pages. You have to wonder how things might have gone if he'd had to write an actual story out of that shit. But anyway, there's some plot escalation that goes on with Major Lee effectively kidnapping the Parasite as a weapon to use against Superman, and for obvious reasons, I suspect we haven't seen the last of this. And actually, that's a good little segue into Lex and Alexandra Luther, or Lex Squared. Lex superficially resembles Lionel Luther from Smallville. And because of that, I've got a little bit of a conspiracy theory that I just want to load out there. You can think of this as speculation and nothing more. Because as far as I know, there are no spoilers out there to be had for Superman Earth 1 Volume 3. But... Here's what I think is is what's going to go on here. Lex is shown to be fairly benign and passive. He's not looking to start something with anybody, but Alexandra? She's the one who wants to kill Superman here, so what if Superman's main enemy in this book doesn't become Lex Luthor? What if it turns out to be Alexandra? What if she becomes the de facto Lex Luthor of the Earth-1 verse? That's where I think this is going. And I guess we'll see if I'm wrong, and I probably am, but there's my theory. Oh, and here, here's another theory. And this actually relates more to Tyrell from Volume 1. But what I think we're going to discover before too long is that Jarrell is the traitor that JMS implied exists in Volume 1. We'll see how that plays out, but honestly, Jarrell's the only person on Krypton, or from Krypton, who's gotten any kind of real character development. So, my guess is that the, the big reveal, so to speak, is going to be that Jarrell is actually the one who engineered Krypton's destruction. And speaking of Jarrell, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Jor-El's AI that Superman talks to in that non-fortress fortress that he has, or if it's his ship's AI, or what. But I do like the idea of Clark having some kind of an AI to serve as his cue. It's not so much that he needs guidance or some bullshit, it's more that he needs something that'll develop war suits and tech and shit like that, or teach him about Krypton's history or just whatever else. So that works for me. One thing JMS didn't do here though is go for the obvious pairing of Lois and Clark, or Lois and Superman for that matter. In fact, Lois and Superman don't even really interact in this story. Superman swoops into the Daily Planet newsroom and then he tackles the, uh, the parasite and they both tumble out a window. 
and I'll be coming back to that, by the way. But uh, they both tumble out uh, out a window, and really, that's the closest thing to any kind of interaction we get from Superman and Lois in this story. Clark and Lois don't really interact a whole lot more, though. I mean, yeah, Lois does a pretty extensive background check on Clark, but they really don't talk a whole lot to each other. So, obviously, JMS is taking his time here. And I'm not criticizing him for that either. I'm just, I'm just pointing it out. And I have to say, this is one aspect of the story that really worked for me. Lois is top dog at the Daily Planet, and she didn't get there with a smile. She knows a line of bullshit when she, when she sees one, and something about Clark sets off warning bells. Now, she eventually puts her little research project to bed before she uncovers all of Clark's secrets, but now Clark has just cause to be a little bit paranoid around Lois. He has a good reason to avoid her. And this whole thing accomplishes two things. It sets Lois on the path to eventually figuring out Clark's secret identity, which I'm fine with. But in the interim, it lets Clark and Lois both pursue other love interests, which I'm also fine with. And speaking of that, I dug Clark's relationship with Lisa LaSalle. Well, relationship. Not sure if that's even the right word to use, but whatever. Clark's association with Lisa. I dig it. I also dig how she kind of ups the ante a little bit and has four L's in her name. I see what you did there, Mr. JMS. But anyway, Clark and Lisa's scenes together are just fun, mostly. Until you find out Lisa's been working as a part-time hooker, that is. And that's probably not so fun. And honestly, I just like Lisa as a character. She needs a friend, and she's probably been used and abandoned her whole life. She needs someone who'll just treat her like a human. And to me, anyway, it's kind of logical that she'd gravitate toward, toward Clark. That works for me in a big way. Another thing is Clark moving into that rat hole apartment out in the ghetto. I mean, look, newbie reporters don't really earn a whole lot of money. It's, it'd be ridiculous to think that Clark can afford some swanky condo downtown on his crummy salary. This puts Clark in a position where he meets Eddie Monroe, one of his other neighbors. This is the first chance that a human interest story has ever just stared Clark right in the face, and then he looked right past it. Now, I love Superman being portrayed as a humanitarian. That works for me. Now, it can be gone overboard with. Sometimes he's almost a, a super social worker rather than a superhero. And that bugs me because, look, end of the day, Superman isn't here to care for the poor. He's here to fight supervillains. So, Eddie Monroe isn't, isn't really a, a reminder to Superman that he can't save everyone. He's an object lesson that Clark and Superman have two different roles to fulfill. Eddie Monroe silently begged Superman to save him. But that's not Superman's job. Eddie needed a friend. And Clark could have been that friend. But he never really gave Eddie the time of day. And this is something Clark can learn from. You see, in my ideal interpretation of Superman, I view the characters of Clark and Superman as carrying out two very different but still complementary roles. The issue here is that in a global sense, Cal-El helps people. That's what he's all about. But there are two different, separate, and unrelated manifestations of that. Superman's the front man. He's the guy that does the big and impressive stuff. He arrests bank robbers, fights supervillains, foils kidnappings, and all that shit. Superman gets the photo ops and the big publicity. He deals with society's big problems. The Parasite is a textbook example of a job for Superman. Clark's the guy fighting it out day to day though, exposing white-collar crime and government corruption and that, you know, that kind of shit. Clark does the stuff Superman can't. Superman's a leader and a warrior. 
but he can't single-handedly save the world. He's, to kind of get a little bit Donner for a minute, he's here to be the light that shows the way. Clark has to be the one who deals with the shit that's just not a job for Superman. Eddie Monroe is the textbook example of a job for Clark Kent. In all cases, Kal-El represents or presents the world with two separate but equally important figures in Clark and Superman for the world to aspire to. I view Superman as a fundamentally aspirational character, and my guess is that JMS has a similar point of view since he's writing both characters in ways that pretty much line up with how I see him. Now, I've said before, and this is just kind of moving on to other things. Now, I've said before on many occasions that I'm not fond of realism in comics. And the reason for that is because, especially with DC, it limits you. The minute you place something in a real-world type of setting, you have to confront real-world problems. When I first started this podcast, I railed against Batman, Earth 1, Volume 1, primarily because of the birthday boy. My point then and now was that sick fucks like that exist and are all too common in the real world, but I don't need to see shit like that in my comics. The birthday boy is everything that's wrong and flawed with the idea of making comic characters realistic. And as it happens, Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 begins addressing some of the same problems that come from realism, but just from a very different point of view. The conflict on the island country of Barada is a good example of what I mean. You see, JMS had to write about a fictional country because we don't want to risk offending anybody here, heavens no. It's okay to put this shit in realistic types of situations, but for God's sake, don't name names. That's racist. But fuck it. Anyway, so Superman basically raises up and instigates a rebellion against General Samson. He outfits the rebel army with, with guns and they overthrow General Samsa. And it's a safe bet that Samsa's a dead man by the last page of, of Volume 2. Now think about that. Directly or indirectly, blood is now on Superman's hands. And it's specifically because of politics. Superman decided the government of a sovereign nation isn't good enough, so he took steps to overthrow it. The deaths and murders and violence that ensue are all on him. I'm sorry, but just where the fuck is the morality here? Does Superman have the right to cause so many deaths just because he doesn't like a particular government? I mean, really, what gives him the right to choose what kind of government other countries should live under? What about America, then? What if Superman someday just stops believing in democracy? What then? What if Superman decides some kind of monarchy is the way to go? Or a theocracy? Or communism? Or whatever else? If Superman can overthrow one country's government because he doesn't like how things are done over there, why can't he do the same in America? Why wouldn't he do the same in America? I mean, hell, in relation to that, why shouldn't he? Honestly, I think there are a lot of American politicians who need to retire. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a Superman here who could strong arm these dipshit politicians out of office, take an early retirement? But whose interest is Superman serving here? His own? The people's? Who? And what happens if he doesn't support your politics? What then? I mean, how fucking scary is that? If you're a Democrat, imagine Superman overthrowing the United States government and giving it to the Tea Party. If you're a Republican, imagine Superman overthrowing the United States government and giving it to Code Pink. If you're an independent, grow a pair of balls and pick a side already. And if Superman's going to clean up on that little tiny island, why won't he do the same elsewhere in the world? There are plenty of brutal, repressive regimes out there to choose from. And they regularly, all of them, victimize their own people, rig elections, murder political dissidents, the works. Are they in danger now too? What if they have nuclear weapons? 
Will Superman still overthrow their governments? Or is he going to back down out of fear of escalating this shit into worldwide nuclear war? After all, it's, it's well known that Superman lives in America. What if he pisses off one of those leaders and that leader decides his government is going to launch all of their nukes at America? This is why you don't put Superman in a realistic setting. Someone with his powers can accomplish anything. But the other side of that is politics. It's worldview. People and a lot of Americans always assume democracy is the only legitimate way to govern. Well, motherfuckers, I got some news for you. And I know this is going to piss some people off, but I got to be honest. You think democracy is the only legitimate way to govern? I think history tells a very different story. But that's not even the issue. What I'm talking about here is national sovereignty. Either we have it or we don't. At what point is Superman just a bully in a cape? I mean, seriously, what the fuck gives him the right to push people around like that? The fact that he has powers? Might makes right? Is that how Superman rolls now? Superman and DC heroes in general don't belong in realistic settings precisely because of the ugly real-world ramifications that ensue. Superman isn't God. It's not up to him to decide which regimes stand and which ones fall. DC characters work best in a science fantasy type of setting where the world faces fundamentally different problems than we do here in the real world. Look, you and I live in a world where it's absolutely possible that someone could take a suitcase nuke somewhere in America, a sports stadium, an elementary school, God help us, and then set that son of a bitch off. Now, we can debate the likelihood of that, but we can't argue the theoretical possibility. Superman and the citizens of Metropolis live, or at least ought to live, in a world where seeing a mad scientist driving a purple customized tank through downtown Metropolis to rob a bank isn't a remarkable sight to behold. They face fundamentally different problems from us because their reality is predicated upon different rules of order and chaos. It's no more complicated than that. But that's not the Earth-1 universe. It strives like fuck for all realism. And that's why it's so strange to think that JM JMS went to these kinds of links to undermine his own fucking idea. But here we are. JMS wrote those scenes. Now... Maybe JMS wants us to be disgusted by Superman's willingness to overthrow a sovereign, though tyrannical, government. Maybe he intends to revisit this idea in the future and pay it off somehow. But I suspect what he intended was that we cheer Superman on. Apparently, we're supposed to be happy that Superman personally instigated a civil war and is indirectly responsible for the assassination of a head of state and the murder of God knows how many people in the process. Now, just to kind of put this in, in perspective, and maybe just to put it in better context, I love Man of Steel as a film. I love Henry Cavill as Superman. I thought Man of Steel had tons of unspeakably cool action sequences, and by this point, I've made my peace with the Man of Steel Superman costume not having the red trunks. But people... I'm perfectly willing to admit that I'm concerned about the future of that film franchise. And I have been ever since word came out that the movie series would be more realistic as opposed to fantasy-oriented. My issue has been, from the start, that the more realistic you make this shit, the more you highlight how realistic these characters aren't. What I fear is that sequels to Man of Steel will experiment with similar ideas and concepts as we saw in Superman Earth 1 Volume 2. And don't tell me that's not possible. David Goyer is one of the creative brain trusts behind this movie series. And to bring it all back to topic, Earth 1 Volume 2 is a very good illustration of what can go wrong when you insert these characters into the real world. So, what I'm driving at here is that I like basically all of Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 except for 9 pages. The stuff related to the Barada stuff. 9 pages. 9 pages out of 118. But obviously there are 9 very important pages. Moving on to other stuff. I love the art. But once again, Shane Davis needs work on the fundamentals. 
Don't fucking stack panels on the left. Among other examples, check out page 9. Now, when Westerners read anything, we go from left to right and then top to bottom. It's that simple. Left to right and then top to bottom. Stacking panels on the left forces readers to go from top to bottom and then left to right. It's the rare occasion when that ever works. And it never works in Earth-1. And honestly, Davis doesn't exactly have a clean record here either. He did this shit a few times back in the first volume. Another thing is that Davis, once again, doesn't always keep the action straight. There's a bit where, and I touched on this before, there's a bit where Superman tackles the parasite when he attacks Lois. And then that's followed by another bit on the next page where they fly out of the Daily Planet building. Now, in and of themselves, both of those are cool. But here's the problem. When Superman tackles the parasite, he's moving from right to left within the panel and on the page. When they crash out of the building on the next page, suddenly they're moving from left to right. And this happens a few times in Volume 2, but this was one of the most egregious. Now, don't misunderstand any of this. I am not picking on Shane Davis because I dig his art. He does a great job with the material, and, and if you ask me. I'm just saying it pisses me right off when editors let bullshit like this slide. Shane, D Shane Davis needs to master the fundamentals of storytelling. It, it's not an issue that his art sucks, because it doesn't. I, I, think he, I think he does a phenomenal job. He's one of the best in the business going right now, for whatever my opinion is worth. But on top of that, you can tell that a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into Davis, uh, Davis's work on Volume 2. He gave Volume 2 everything he has. And if you ask me, the end product is better for his contrib uh, contributions. I'm just saying that he needs a better mastery of storytelling basics and comics. He already has talent dripping out his ears. The usual things, perspective, light, shadow, anatomy, architecture. Dude, I can't say a word about any of that stuff. Because Davis has already taken care of business there. And those things look fucking cool. I don't have a single fucking criticism about him on any of those things. So, uh, please, again, don't take any of this as me bashing on the guy. This is just a little bit of constructive criticism. That's all. I mean... I've met Shane Davis, and not only was he nice enough to sign my copy of Earth One, Volume One, but he also chatted for something like five minutes non-stop about Volume Two, which at the time hadn't come out yet. I mean, he was he was just so excited about it, and he and he just he he was like a kid in a candy store. And he's like, oh oh, and then and then there's going to be this, and then this other shit's going to happen, and then that leads into this. And I mean, it's just the point is he's a hell of a nice guy. He's obviously talented. And it's not my business to pick on him, okay? I'm a Shane Davis fan. All right? Anyway. Moving away from the criticism, I really dig the Earth-1 version of the Parasite. Honestly, Parasite's one of those characters I've never really had much stake in either way. I'm happy to see him, but he's just never been an essential character for me. But... Davis makes him look just really weird and freaky. And just generally, I mean, like the uniform level of detail and work in this book. I mean, Jen, uh, Jensen is just a sick fuck, and that's brought across in all of the art. I mean, you almost don't even need the text to know that this guy has just got serious fucking issues. I mean, and, and there's just an extraordinary at level of detail and attention to detail. Even on the most mundane things, fire escapes in the backgrounds as part of buildings and things like that. Because uh, I, I, I kind of consider myself to be a little bit into backgrounds, and I always like paying attention to how artists draw them. Because you, can, you get so much, or you can anyway, get so much detail in these backgrounds. And I just dig it, I guess is the best way to put it. And it, it, honestly, it... It kind of saddens me that Davis isn't coming back for uh, Earth-1, Volume 3. Now, I'm not criticizing him for that. He, uh, 
there's some other comic book that he's working on and there was just a, uh, a scheduling problem there. There's no way to make it work. And so he, I don't know who's going to draw volume three. I just know that it's not going to be Shane Davis. And I'll be honest that, look, I don't begrudge the guy, you know, having work. In fact, if anything, an artist as talented as him, I'm glad he's got more work than, than he can process. All right. I'm actually very happy about that. Guys like this need to get as much work as they can. And I also wouldn't hold it against him if his attitude about it was, you know, guys, I've driven, I, I've drawn two volumes of this stuff. I think I'm kind of tapped out when it comes to Superman. I want to draw some other stuff for a while. That's fine, too. I'm just talking strictly selfishly now. I really wish that we could get more Shane Davis for volume three because his work, his work on on Superman Earth One has just been he was always good, but man, his art really turned a corner whenever he started on Earth One. And unfortunately they don't number these fucking pages, so I can't really tell you I can't really give you a page number. But basically it's the final showdown between Superman and Parasite in downtown Metropolis. Superman's got that containment suit on, that sort of crystalline whatever that is. And there's a page where Superman says, then let's do this thing. And he's basically pounding the shit out of, out of the parasite. And think about this. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There are ten fucking panels on this page. All right? When was the last time you saw a comic book that had ten panels on a page? I'm at a serious fucking loss to think of the last time I saw something like this. But Davis not only does it, but he does it in a very entertaining way. There's plenty of detail in there. You can it's still easy to see what you're looking at. And it, and it's actually I don't like I don't like comparing comics to cinema because I think that tends to kind of imply that comics should be cinematic and I don't think they necessarily have to be. I think comics should be comics. Cinema should be cinema. And never the twain shall meet. But this kind of gives you the impression of sort of quick cuts. These little panels of Superman getting slammed into the pavement by a Parasite. Then he zips back up. He gives Parasite a knee to the face. Parasite punches Superman across the street. He picks up this huge oil tanker. I mean, just on and on and on. And it's just little things like this that I don't think would have turned out as well in the hands of a lesser artist. And so... I'm not trying to turn this into like a, a Shane Davis love fest, but considering that I did sort of give him both barrels a minute ago with a constructive criticism, not mean-spirited criticism, constructive criticism, I just want to give him his due in terms of, I mean, fuck, this is a job well done. This is a job well fucking done. Anyway, so I look, it's not like Shane Davis listens to this show, so whatever, I don't think he'd give a damn what I think, but anyway point is it's just man you talk about taking care of business he cleaned up so that's pretty much that for this episode i'm gonna take a break be right back after these messages the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay.
So what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Agnes here. Again. Look, I realize that what I'm about to say pretty much has nothing to do with what I just got finished talking about, but I need some kind of outlet for this, and let's face it, this probably isn't worthy of an episode all by itself, so I guess here's as good a place as any for it. At the time I record this, it is Sunday, May the 18th, 2014, 4.32 in the afternoon, Central Time. And yesterday, my girlfriend and I celebrated our anniversary, which isn't actually our anniversary. It's just the observance of our anniversary, because our actual anniversary is going to be spent at work. So there's really not going to be an option for us to hang out together on that day. Because of that, yesterday, May the 17th, Saturday, she came over, we hung out, you know, did all the usual anniversary stuff. And one of her anniversary presents to me was the Veronica Mars movie. Veronica Mars, the movie, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. And to be perfectly frank, I'm really not big on TV in general. But man, Veronica Mars was 
it's one of those shows you just couldn't walk away from. And I got in on the ground floor of Veronica Mars. I guess in the grand scheme of things, not really very early. It was actually, depending on how you look at it, fairly late in the game. I don't know. Or at least fairly well along in the game. What happened was, I found out about the show and, you know, during the first season. Season one of Veronica Mars. That's when I found out about it, you know. And originally there was a little bit of resistance on my part because, you know, honestly, I kind of viewed it like what little I knew about it. It sounded like almost like a, a, a spinoff show for Chloe Sullivan from Smallville. Basically, this is the stuff that she's doing when she's not sharing a subplot with Clark. And it didn't help that, you know, her sidekick was this, you know, black kid that, you know, maybe there was a relationship there, maybe there wasn't. And I don't know, it just felt like it was a little too close to Smallville for me to be completely comfortable with. But for those of you who remember, you may realize that season one of Veronica Mars debuted during season four of Smallville. And as I'm probably going to get into much later on down the line in my Smallville retrospective, I really grew to hate Smallville during season four. I just felt completely betrayed by it. It was from A to Z, basically everything that I thought the show shouldn't have been. And here we are. And so because of that, and probably for no other reason, I was willing to give Veronica Mars a day in court. And what I've often told people is that this is probably the best pilot for any TV show there's ever been. I challenge anybody to watch the Veronica Mars pilot and then not, not want to watch everything else that comes after. And that's basically what ended up happening with me. I watched every single episode that there had been up to that point after watching the pilot. So that's... I think that's, uh, I'm looking at my little list here, and that's, that works out to 15 episodes. So from the pilot episode, you know, episode number one that season, up through number 15, Ruski Business, I watched them all over the span of just, uh, I want to say it was like a week or something like that. But, you know, it, you can watch an episode or two, you know, each night, and you'd be amazed, you know, what, it, you know, what you're capable of doing when a show is that good. And so, you know, pretty much from that point on, I was in a Veronica Mars jersey. And again, partly it was because it was just a really good fucking show. But honestly, I, like I said, I really don't think I would have given it a chance had it not been for the fact that Smallville sucked out loud that season. You know, had Veronica Mars debuted in Smallville season three, or maybe even season five, I don't think I would have been willing to accommodate. That's not what happened, though. It debuted during Smallville's fourth season, the dreaded fourth season, and here we are. And I pretty much followed the show from that point on. Never missed an episode of Veronica Mars. Followed it all the way through. The trials and the tribulations that, you know, the production faced, everything that happened, I was in on it for. And, you know, that first season, I think the network, UPN, I think the network would have been well within their rights to cancel Veronica Mars, but the fans spoke, and so Veronica Mars received a stay of execution. Season two rolls around. Once again, Veronica Mars is on the bubble. You just, you, you, there was no way to know for sure which way things were going to go. Once again, Veronica Mars in season two got a stay of execution. Season three is when the hammer dropped, and the show basically was canceled. It, during the first year of the CW, they made a very intelligent business decision. They, you know, honestly, like I said, they would have been justified in canceling the show during the first season. We got three seasons. So I guess on that basis, it really doesn't make sense to be upset about how things turned out or get pissed off about it or, or anything like that. But I mean, at the same time, so much was left on the table at the end of season three. You know, Keith Mars was facing charges for destroying police evidence. 
Vinnie Van Lowe had probably won the election to be sheriff of uh, Neptune. And let's not forget, now you had Veronica in open warfare with the castle. Basically, the 1% of the 1% of the 1% in Neptune, right? And it just kind of felt like, wow, this is the moment that the show dies on us. And that's what happened. The show ended on that note. It was very ambiguous. It was very uncertain. The future for the characters looked pretty fucking dark. And that's when that's when things ended. And for a lot of years, that was basically what we fans had to live with. And then there was a very small glimmer of hope that Veronica Mars might actually continue as a comic book written and and if not written in some way or another led or organized edited whatever you want to call it by series creator Rob Thomas no not that Rob Thomas so anyway and that ended up just withering on the vine it never happened and so basically we fans were back to waiting and then out of nowhere kickstarter campaign gets underway and funding a Veronica Mars movie, which is, needless to say, so much more than any of us ever thought we'd get as far as a continuation of the show. But here it is, and we've got it, and it's, it's, it looks like it's going to be you know cool and everything. We're finally going to get some kind of payoff for all of those subplots and things that were just kind of left on the table. And... And honestly, that's kind of where things take a turn. And no, when I finally saw the movie, that is not what we got. It's basically an introduction to Veronica Mars for complete non-fans. Which, let's be fair, keeping the show fresh for new fans, for new viewers and all that stuff was never something that Veronica Mars as a TV show was ever really all that good at. You know, pretty much if you didn't get in on the ground floor of the show and watch continuously, there really wasn't much hope of joining in on the show. So I understand wanting to make the movie as accessible as possible. I don't fault them for that. But nevertheless, I think a lot of Veronica Mars fans watched the movie wanting to get some kind of payoff for what ended up happening at what became the series finale, The Bitch is Back from season three and it just it didn't happen you know we don't know what ended up happening with keith mars and the charges he was facing for destroying police evidence we don't know whether or not vinnie van lowe won the uh, sheriff election and then maybe got chased out of office or something who knows we don't know what ended up happening with uh the castle and the Kane family and all that stuff that was going on with Veronica, how that may have ended up affecting her time at uh, Hearst College and all of that. All of these things were basically just completely left on the table and totally fucking ignored. And I'll be honest with you, that's not the movie that I wanted to see, right? Even if it, you know, even if what they wanted to do was just basically continue the story, tell a new story and not rely on what happened before, just a passing line of dialogue that at least that shit happened would have been enough. I mean, look, we got that much for the the uh, Veronica Mars season four presentation where Veronica joins the, the uh, FBI. They teased a reference to that during Veronica's scene with, with uh, Deputy Leo, right? They may just, you know, blink and you miss it, but it's kind of a sneaky little reference to it. And, you know, we got that, so what? We can't get at least some kind of a quick explanation of just what the fuck happened after the end of the season, you know, three finale? Look, I I don't want to make it sound like I didn't enjoy the movie, because I totally did, all right? And I don't want to spoil too much of it. Actually, I guess I could, because it's been so long now. If you haven't seen the Veronica Mars movie yet, I guess it's because you're not going to. But nevertheless, spoilers, they're coming, so just be ready for it. Three, two, one. Okay, if the movie's spoiled for you now, dude, it's on you. It's your fault, not mine. Who would have ever thought Gia Goodman would ever be a, a villain? 
for Veronica Mars to go up against. I never... And, yeah, I mean, I, I realize she wasn't, like, the villain villain, the main bad guy and all that stuff, but she was up to that stuff, up you know, up to her neck. And, honestly, who would have ever thought Gia Goodman would have that kind of brain capacity, right? But she does, or did. And, you know, honestly, that worked for me. Goings on with... Uh, Mac and her going to work for Kane Software works for me. Wallace becoming, I think that was a uh, football coach at Neptune High, that works for me. You know, on and on and on, all the things, all the growth that the characters have been through, all the things that happened in the movie, it all felt believable to me, you know? So I don't want to make it sound like I'm ungrateful for the movie or what, it's just that you know, there was a certain number of things I wanted that movie to accomplish, and it just didn't. And that's... Yeah, and you know what? Maybe that's on me. Maybe that's my fault. Maybe I put pressures and expectations on the movie that it, honestly, it just doesn't deserve, you know? And maybe I'm the one that just, you know, I wasn't being fair with all of this. I don't know. All right, but it just... I just, honestly, all the all of the waiting, and then just the, honestly, the fucking disappointment of the show being canceled, sensible a business decision, though that may have been, it just kind of feels like, you know what, I, I hate to say the, you know, you owe us one card, because honestly, I hate it when fans do that, but in this specific case, I kind of feel like, you know what, dude, Rob Thomas, you owed us one on this, and it didn't even need to be anything major. You know, there's no need to, de- to derail the movie that you're trying to make here by uh, putting in a bunch of references to, you know, subplots and other things that, honestly, your target audience, which is to say the completely non-Veronica Mars audience, stuff that was just screw them up in watching the movie and, you know, ultimately be a distraction. There's just no sense in that. And I understand that, you know? But at the same time... You know, if you don't have a, a fair working knowledge of Veronica Mars, the history and the characters, that movie's a pretty fucking hard thing to get into anyway. I mean, yeah, the premise itself is fairly accessible. It's a murder investigation. Veronica Mars has to get her man. So that's a fairly simple thing to follow. But, you know, goings on with Weevil and him rejoining the PCH biker gang, really, the emotional content of that comes from knowing the circumstances under which he left the PCH biker gang, you know? And so seeing him go back, the emotion of that comes exclusively from that episode, and now I'm blanking on it, um, from, a, from a season two, where uh, basically Thumper showed Weevil the door, you know? And that's pretty much it, you know? And it just kind of feels to me that you know, you, that Rob Thomas thought nothing of putting in stuff like that that is very continuity-dependent, but we can't get just a couple of lines of dialogue that give closure to what happened at the end of uh, Season 3, right? And I just feel like, you know what? Rob Thomas is a better storyteller than that. He's a better writer than that. We as fans, I hate to, say, I hate to play the fucking entitlement card, but I kind of have to do it here. I think we as fans deserved better, you know? Now, the movie itself, like I said, I enjoyed it. It had a lot of twists and turns. As a matter of fact, it did something that I thought the, sh- the show itself sometimes lacked, right? Where after the first season, you pretty much knew that who the, the bad guy at least wasn't going to be, right? When season two got underway, there was no chance that, I don't know, Duncan Kane blew up the bus, or that Wallace blew up the bus, or Keith, or, or, or whoever, right? It pretty much had to be somebody who was relatively new to the show. And there are only a finite number of people to choose from on that, you know? But the movie put the handcuffs, so to speak, on Gia Goodman. And like I said, who the fuck saw that one coming, right? But it works because she was an established character. She was somebody that the Veronica Mars audience was pretty familiar with. And so I remember instantly dismissing her as a suspect, A, because she's an idiot, and B, we already know her. We've seen her story play out. And so imagine my surprise when, no, it turns out she's, again, she's not the headlining villain, 
But she's very deeply interconnected with all of this stuff. I mean, a lot of this relates back to her. And anyway, so it just kind of felt like, you know, all of that stuff, very continuity-heavy, very continuity-centric types of developments could be put in the movie. No big deal. This, which is to say the uh, events of the third season finale, somehow that's too much to even consider, you know? And I, I, guess I don't get it, you know? So whatever, it's over and done with now. And honestly, the movie as it is, it was a ton of fun. I don't regret, you know, hanging out with my girlfriend to watch it. I even really like the movie. And I can foresee, you know, that being part of, you know, if I ever do another Veronica Mars, you know, viewing project, and I'm sure I probably will at some point in the future, the movie's going to be part of that. To me, the movie is part of the canon now. You know, but it's just a, at the same time, it kind of feels like a lot of this stuff was left on the table for absolutely no reason. No reason whatsoever. And I just, I don't get it. So, I don't know if there's going to be a sequel to the movie or not. You know, because apparently, because of just the shitty release, that li- very limited release that it had, it didn't actually make its money back at the box office. It only was, it was only released like a couple dozen or at most a couple hundred movie theaters and that's it. So who knows if there's going to be a sequel to this or not. But it just kind of feels like this movie with just a few minor changes, this movie exactly as it is, I don't know. It just could have been so much more, you know, and whatever. It's like, again, don't take this the wrong way. I enjoyed the movie. I liked it. It was a lot of fun. And like I said, it's to me, it's part of the canon now, you know. The season four presentation is not part of the canon. It's just an idea of what season four could have been like, you know, who knows. But the movie, the movie is canon and I, there's just nothing now, you know, and I don't know. Anyway, so don't let this put you off from watching it, or God forbid, you know, change your opinion of the movie that, you know, maybe you originally liked it and now you're starting to see some weaknesses in it. I just wanted to talk about just a couple of things that I thought just could have been done better. And honestly, with very little effort, it really could have worked in, in, into the, you know, goings on of the movie very easily. And you know, maybe strengthened some of the uh, plot developments of, you know, now the O-Niners truly do own this town and the, sh- and the Sheriff's Department and all that. You know, the uh, castle basically owns Neptune now because that's what it took to do damage control or something. And it wouldn't have been all that hard to do, you know, implicate Veronica in every na- negative thing that's happened to Neptune since she left, but anyway, it didn't happen. So, whatever. Anyway, so that's basically it for me. Um, See all of you next week. Bye, everybody. I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-
N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.